Good morning, Lakeview Church, and happy Valentine's Day. I'm just looking for panicked faces that you forgot and your significant other sitting next to you and you're trying to figure out how you're going to get out of this. Um, no, it's good to be able to share with you today. And we're going to talk about love, as you might imagine. Uh, but we're not going to talk about the kind of romantic love that this holiday often gets uh, kind of focused in on. We're going to talk about the love that Jesus commanded us to have in John chapter 13 and the kind of love that Jesus prays for in John 17. And we're going to unpack these two passages of Scripture and hopefully learn a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian community. At the end of this service, we're going to respond to the Word of God with communion. So for those of you who are joining us online today, I want to just uh, go ahead and invite you, if you haven't done so already, to prepare some communion elements. You could get some bread or some crackers, some juice, and make sure that you have those elements ready by the time we get to the end of the sermon today. So John chapter 13, Jesus commands that we would love one another just as Jesus has loved us. And then he says that this is the way the world will know that we are his followers. There are a couple things that I think we just need to point out right off the top here as we think about John chapter 13. The first is that love is a command. You actually don't get to look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and decide if you want to love them or not. It's not like, oh yeah, they're cool. I, I think I'll love them. No, if we are followers of Jesus, we are actually commanded by our Lord to love one another just like Jesus loved us. Love is a command. Second thing I'd point out from John 13 is that love is a verb. Love is not just a bunch of words on a glittery Hallmark card. And it's not just a fluttery feeling that we have in the pit of our stomach. Love usually involves words and feelings, but it goes beyond that. It actually has to show up in the way that we live our lives. We conduct ourselves in a way to actually demonstrate love to one another. We have to actually show what we say and what we feel through our actions. Jesus did this. Jesus didn't just come and say, I love you. And he didn't just come and have a feeling of love towards us. Jesus comes and he dies on the cross to demonstrate God's own love for us. Love is a verb. It always shows up in actions towards one another. And then third thing I'd say from John 13 is that love is the defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. Not one of the marks, not an optional idea, but this is the way. For those of you who are Mandalorian fans, this is the way. This is the way. Amen. Right? This, is, this is the way that we show the world that we are followers of Jesus. How will they know? They'll know because of the way we love each other. Right? Sometimes in the church we get wrapped up in making sure that we have the right positions and the right theological arguments and the right biblical beliefs and the right positions on all of the cultural issues of our day. And I want to let you know that it's important that we do that. Our positions matter. 
Some people would say positions don't matter as much as, as the way we, we show love and kindness towards one another. And so as long as we're loving and kind to one another, our positions are secondary. I, I don't agree with that. I just want to be clear. I want to be really clear that I don't agree with that. I don't think you let positions go out the window so you can show love to one another. I don't think that you have to stop believing in something that's true and right and correct in order to demonstrate love to someone else. You actually can hold a right position and you can do it in love. I actually believe that's possible. And I think that's what we're called to. So I'm not suggesting don't worry about your position. What I am suggesting is that if you have the right position, perfectly correct in every way, it's still possible to be a poor witness for Jesus Christ in this world. So we can have all of the right positions, but if our disposition is wrong, it actually undercuts all of our positions. People look and they say, your life doesn't match your message. So I'm not saying don't have positions. I'm saying we ought to have positions. We ought to be some of the most convictional people on the planet because we actually have the truth of God's word that we stand on. And this doesn't shift or change with culture. This stays the same. And we stand on this word. But if we know everything the word says, but we don't actually love one another, then it's like we say the word doesn't matter at all. We need to have the right positions built on the word of God, but we need to have the kind of character that actually is able to love one another in the midst of a world where love isn't the primary characteristic that we show towards each other. Jesus commands us to have this kind of love, but he doesn't just command it. He deeply desires that we would love one another. So much so that as he's moving towards the cross, he has this long extended prayer in John 17. One of the longest prayers recorded, in fact, it is the longest prayer recorded of Jesus in the scriptures. This is Jesus calling out to his father on behalf of his current disciples, the 12 that he had called, but also for all who would come after them. It was read earlier for us that Jesus is praying for all of those who would come after these disciples. And what does Jesus pray for? That they might be one. That they might be in perfect unity. Unity that's driven by self-giving love. He says that he's praying for them to be perfectly one. Unified. Just as the Father and Jesus are one. He wants that for us. That we would have that same kind of unity. Now at the risk of losing all of you this morning. I want to go down a little theological trail. So take a deep breath and do your very best to lean in for these next few minutes. I promise I'll make it as short and as clear as I possibly can. But I think it's actually important for us to understand some doctrine so that we can better understand what Jesus is praying for in this passage. In the Christian tradition, the Orthodox Christian faith, we actually believe in a doctrine called the doctrine of the Trinity. It is this belief that we have that our God is three persons in one God. 
And as we think about it, it seems confusing. And I would actually change the term from confusing to mysterious. Why it's so confusing for us to think about three in one, to think about it as three persons being one God, how is that possible? And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. The reason it's hard is because it's mysterious. After all, we're talking about the God of the universe. If he was easy to understand, what kind of God would he be? Just one made in our image, right? But God is actually so far beyond our comprehension that when we start talking about his character and his nature and who he is, there are parts of him that we just think, that's kind of confusing. I don't understand. And when you're going down that trail, you're probably on the right path. You always ought to have a little bit of a holy reverence to say, he is so far beyond my ability to comprehend. Yep. That's exactly right. He is. The triune God. People try to explain it, and, and they explain it in, in some different ways. And, and you may have heard these. You may have used these yourself. But the first two I'm going to give you are actually incorrect. So if, you, if you've used these, stop. Okay, just put them aside. Don't ever use them again. Okay? People will say things like this. Here's how you explain the triune God. It's like me. I am a son and I'm a husband, and I'm a father, but I'm one person. That kind of makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? How one person could be three different things, except I'm still just one person playing three different roles. That's actually heretical. Don't use that ever again. That's outside of what the Christian faith believes. We actually don't believe that God is just one person who plays three different roles. Some people have used a different analogy. They've, they've gone to the theater, and they've said, you know how sometimes a, an actor will put on different masks and play different characters at different scenes or acts within the play? They, they say that God does that. Read the Old Testament, and you see God with the mask of the Father. Read the Gospels, and you see God with the mask of Jesus, the Son. Read the New Testament letters, and you see God with the mask of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's, that's heresy. Don't, don't say that. That's not the way we say it. That's not what the Christian church has historically believed. Now, it took a little while for the church to actually articulate this doctrine, but when they did articulate it, they didn't say, how can one God be three different things? They said, how can three different persons be one God? You see, the problem with the first two is that we're trying to take one person and divide him so that that one person makes up a third of the Godhead. That's not how it works. God is actually three different persons who dwells together in community. I don't want you to think about God as someone who's a father and a son and a spirit and he just plays different roles or he wears different masks. No, I want you to think about God the Father God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Three different, distinct persons, yet so unified in a community together that it's hard to say that they're different because they always act together. Yeah, they, they do different things in God's redemptive plan, 
right? Jesus is the one in the Godhead who becomes flesh. And he dwells among us and he teaches us the ways of God and he dies on the cross and he's buried and he's raised again and he ascends to be with the Father. And after the Father and the Son are together in heaven again, they send the Spirit on the church. Not one God playing three different roles or wearing three different masks, three completely distinct different persons dwelling together in community. And they dwell together so closely with one another. And they never act independently of each other. And they never go against one another. And they're never against each other or in conflict with one another. Perfectly unified. Three persons in one. Now, for those of you who are still with me, thank you. Good job. Now come back to John 17. When Jesus prays for us, I pray for all of them who would come after, even those at Lakeview Church in the middle of a pandemic in 2021. I pray for them that they would be one just as we are one. See, the doctrine of the Trinity is not just this confusing thing that we just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, we can't understand it. We should just move on with our lives. No, there is a bit of reverence and, and mystery involved when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, but then we realize that Jesus actually wants us not just to be in awe of who God is. Jesus actually invites us to participate in the community of the Godhead. We don't become God but we are invited to live in union with God, so much so that the more unified we become in our walk with the Lord, the more we actually start to treat each other the same way the persons of the Godhead treat one another. In perfect unity that flows from self-giving love. Some of you maybe still aren't following with me. Let me just say it this way. God does not invite us just to sit back and say, isn't that neat what God does? God actually wants us to become like him. Which is why when Jesus prays, he says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. Because you start to look like me. You start to love like me. This is how the world will know that the Father has sent me, Jesus prays, because the people who are following me will be so unified with one another that when the world looks at them, they'll say, Jesus must be real. Human beings can't do this on their own. This is what we're called to as the Christian community. In my mind, this raises the importance of love and unity as a community of faith beyond just good organizational practice. Like, we'll be more effective as a church if we're unified. That's true. But that is an insufficient reason for us to pursue unity. And, and we shouldn't pursue unity just because it feels better. It does feel better. It's kind of nice when we all get along. Isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I actually like being with a group of people that I like being with. That's more fun than being with people that I don't want to be with, right? 
But that's not sufficient for us to pursue love and unity together. No, the reason we pursue it is because, because this is who God is. And the world actually needs us to be an alternative community inside of this world, showing them what is possible because of who God is in us and through us. So I'll take us back to John 13, where Jesus commands us to love one another. I'll take us to John 17 again, where Jesus says, Oh, Father, help them be one just as you and I are one. And I'll remind us that love is an action. So how in the world are we supposed to love one another? What does it look like in real life? Can I give you three ways real quick? First, I think that you and I, in this day in which we live, we must act towards one another in ways that suggest we have supporting love for each other. One of the kinds of love that I think we are called to have is supporting love. This is the kind of love that when we see one of our members of the Christian community mourning and grieving because of a loss that they've experienced or because of a difficulty that they're facing, what do we do? We come alongside, we put our arm around them, and we weep with those who weep. In the same way, when we see one among us who is experiencing a wonderful victory, We go and we celebrate. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And when we see those among us who maybe have needs, there are things that they lack in life and and we can help them. It is commanded in scripture that we would help one another. In the book of Acts, it's described this way in the early church that no one among them had any needs. Why? Because the body took care of the body. That's what we're called to as the church. That's supporting love. Second kind of love I think we're called to have is guiding love. And this shows up in two ways. It shows up in in the fact that you and I are called to set an example for other people in the body. And when people in the body start to uh, kind of veer away from the path, we're supposed to call them back. That's what it means to love one another. Set an example and call people back who are going astray. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes about setting an example. He he writes to the Christians in Corinth and he says to them, Hey guys, I know you're having this ethical question. Should you eat meat sacrificed to idols? This is probably an ethical dilemma that we've all dealt with at one time or another in our lives, right? Should Should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? But in Corinth, this was a big deal because Corinth was a city that just had all over the landscape, all of these temples built to various gods, and people would go to these temples and they would sacrifice meat, and then after the sacrifice was over, they would throw a party with the meat that they burnt on the altar. It was kind of like a barbecue. And they would invite all of their friends to come to the temple courts and they would celebrate together. And so Christians had this ethical dilemma. When my unsaved friends invite me to dinner at the temple court and they're serving food that's been sacrificed to the idol, can I go eat that food? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, of course you can. What difference does it make? It's just food. That's actually what he says in verse 8. Food doesn't commend you to God. You don't get right with God because you eat certain things or don't eat other things. You don't get right with God because you drink this or don't drink that. God doesn't care about that. 
You have the right to eat the food if you want to eat the food. Just do it with a thankful heart. And just keep reading. You get to verse 9. And then Paul says, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. You might cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. And I, I love Paul. I read his letters all of the time. And, and he's confusing at points. This is one of the points. You just said it's okay. And now you're saying don't do it. Which is it? It's kind of both. It's kind of both. And that's why it's hard for us to understand. Paul's saying you have the right to eat the food. God will not condemn you for eating the food unless it hurts your brother or sister. Because as much as we like to hold claim to our rights, in God's kingdom economy, rights matter, but responsibilities matter more. Paul says, you've got a right to eat the food, but when you eat the food, if it causes someone else, a weaker brother or sister, to think to themselves, oh, idols must be okay. Must be okay to sacrifice meat there. Must be okay to, to serve God and serve that idol. Then at that point, you're actually harming your brother or sister and you're hurting their faith. And so even though you have a right to eat and God won't condemn you for that, God will condemn you for setting a bad example for your brother or sister. Which means that yes, you should claim your rights in the kingdom of God, but you have to always let those be governed by your responsibilities to who? To the Christian community. That's what it means to set an example. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, if you see a brother or sister and they start to go away from the path, they, they're caught in a transgression, it's your job, he says, if you're spiritual, if you're spiritual, it's your job to go to that person and restore them. This means that when you see a brother or sister who's veering off the path that God has marked out for us, it's our job prayerfully, carefully, and personally to go to that person and to let them know, hey, I've observed something in your life. And I, I think you're starting to go off the path. And as a brother or sister, I'm just calling you back to the way. It's not enough to say you love someone, and it's not enough to feel love towards them. You have to actually show it, and this is one of the ways you show it. What I see, though, a lot of times is we see somebody veer off the path, and then we just decide, let me go to Facebook and rip this person to shreds. And we kind of laugh because it's true. And I want to just make it as clear as I possibly can. Stop it. Don't do that. When you see a minister or a leader or a Christian who has this wide publicity in the world, when you see them fall, that's not a time to jump on the bandwagon and rip someone to shreds. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Just talk to the Lord about it. Right? That's what it means to live in Christian community. It doesn't mean that we rip each Is that the way the world will know we're his disciples? By the way we rip each other apart? No. We've got to love each other. Love demands something more. Now, I've got to move on. 
because they put a little clock up here for me now that counts down, and it goes red when I go over. So I got not much time left for this last point, reconciling love. Listen, there are times in the Christian community where we don't get along with each other, and the reason for that is because conflict bubbles up, right? Because anytime you get a bunch of people together, we're not always going to see eye to eye. Right? I mean, my wife and I always see eye to eye. We never fight. We never have disagreements. And if you believe that, you are crazy. Of course. Just human beings. Put them in a room for a little while. At some point, they're going to disagree on something. Listen, the mark of a Christian community is not that we don't ever have conflict. Because we will. The mark of a Christian community is do we know how to deal with conflict when it arises? Matthew 18 is very clear. If you've got something wrong with a brother or sister, who do you go talk to about that? You go to the person you got a problem with. If we just lived by that one biblical principle alone, it would solve a lot of the division and divisiveness within the church. Because what normally happens is we get something wrong with, with, with someone else, and we go talk to 10 other people because we're trying to get our support. And instead, we got to just go to that person and say, hey, I feel like there's something between us. Can we resolve this? Can we work through this? Now, if that doesn't happen, if it doesn't bring resolution, then you go find another brother or sister who's spiritually mature and trusted, and you go back to that person, and with the added weight of Christian community, you try to work through it. And if that doesn't work, then you take that situation and that person to the leadership of the church and you let the leadership of the church help that, those parties work towards reconciliation. This is what we are called to. Not by some secular idea. This is Jesus teaching in Matthew 18. And it's pretty clear. And yet I'm telling you right now in the church, we just forget about Matthew 18 and we do whatever we want to do and we have conflict. And if we want to be a loving community, we got to follow Matthew 18. There's one more part of reconciling love, though, and this maybe is the most important thing that I'll say today. In uh, James chapter 2, verse 1, we are told that in Christian community, we should never show partiality. We should never show favoritism, some translations say. This means that in the church of Jesus Christ, whenever, whenever we get together and we look around the room and we see each other, there is not a single person among us that you could say that person is worth, worth less than any other person in the room. I want to say that again because it's really, really important for us to understand this. Whenever you look around the room when we're together as a Christian community, or whenever you just go out into the community and you're just looking at any human being, there is not a single person that you could ever lock eyes with that you could in any way say that person is worth less than someone else. In the book of James, what they're dealing with in James chapter 2 is favoritism between rich and poor. The rich people come in, they get the best seats. The poor people come in, they get the seats in the back. And there's this division in the community. This is in the church. Rich people being taken better care of than poor people. And James says, it can't be that way. 
And he makes his case for why it can't be that way because Jesus said one of the two most important commandments in this world is that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if we show favoritism or partiality, then we are sinning because we are breaking the command of God. Now let me make this more poignant and clear for us in our world today. We cannot, as God's people, allow racism to exist inside of the church. There is no place for it. It is ungodly and it is sinful. And if you find any part of your heart that is moved towards diminishing another person because of the color of their skin, then you must confess before your God and ask him to forgive you and help you. Because you are not living in a way that pleases God. I can't say it any more clearly than that. And it's not just race. It's economics. You can't think you're better than someone else because you're rich. You can't think you're better than someone else because you're poor. It doesn't work that way. And you can't say that men are better than women or women are better than men. No, when I read the Bible, what I read is that in Jesus Christ, all are one. There isn't Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. That means no racism, no classism, no elitism, not inside the church. No, we are all created in the image of our God. And as such, we have inherent value and worth. And every single person on this planet matters to God equally. And they ought to matter to us equally. No favoritism in the church. Because we're called to have reconciling love in this world. And by the way, this is the only way that they'll know we're his disciples. You want people to know who Jesus is in our world, which, by the way, they need to know who Jesus is. In case you haven't noticed, our world's in trouble. And there are lots of things that are being kind of purported as the answers. I want to just stand in front of you today and say, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And that means he needs a community that loves like he loved us. That means he needs a community that's one, just like he and the Father are one. We got to become that kind of community. So this morning, as we come to a close, and I am in the red, I'm, I'll get better, I'll get better. We're going to celebrate communion.